This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're looking at verses 12 through 14, the close of the chapter, close of the book. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word because it is a word of eternal life. It points us to you. Lord, it feeds our souls. It equips our minds to think rightly about who you are and about what you have done for us in Christ and what you have yet to do. And so, Father, we pray for the light of your Holy Spirit as we study your word. We pray that we would uh, worship you in thinking about these things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, tells us this. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, there's strength in numbers. As you read the scriptures, study Paul's ministry, for example, in the book of Acts. So we read about what he did there. And as you read in his letters, his comments about his ministry, his references to different people, as you read about his thanksgiving for the prayers and support of God's people, his pleading for the prayers of God's people, you realize that as much as we might talk about what Paul did and Paul being here and Paul doing that, that Paul was no lone ranger, that he recognized the strength of numbers. You find that he always had companions, co-laborers with him, As he ministered. In fact, when he's in Athens, it's significant that he's alone because that's the exception, not the rule. Well, as we've been reading these passages in 1 Peter, we're struck by how Peter wants his readers to remain faithful even in times of suffering, even in times of persecution. And one of the encouragements that he gives to them, as we saw last week uh, and read and studied actually the week before, was in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing 
that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so he reminds them not just that there are other Christians in other places who are suffering the same kinds of things that they are, but he says, he puts it this way, he says they are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, not just other Christians, but a brotherhood, as he puts it, an interconnected network, an interwoven fabric. In other words, the church. That those other believers are a part of these believers. These believers are part of those believers. Which is very different from just saying, well, you know, there are other Christians who suffer too. But it's rather they're being suffered by other parts of your brotherhood throughout the world. And the lesson that Peter has for us in these remaining verses, what we can learn from this, is, is precisely that. That believers function best when they are in connection with other believers. Christ does not call us to be lone agents. Even a missionary working alone in another place has a network of support, of prayer, of encouragement, of oversight in place. So believers function best, whether it's ministry, family, church, whatever it might be, in connection with other believers. Now, he's referred to this brotherhood. Well, here in these closing verses, he puts a few names on that brotherhood. And he <coughs> perhaps makes reference to uh, a, a place in connection with that brotherhood here. And so as we take a look at this passage, we want to see where Peter points out five significant connections that they have, connections that are meant to encourage, to challenge them, to support them, to keep them going. And so let's look at them. The first one is Silvanus, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, this man is also known as Silas. Uh, Silvanus may be a Latinized form uh, of his uh, Greek name Silas, which itself was probably derived from an Aramaic name, a Hebrew type of name. Uh, so Silas or Silvanus, Silvanus, same man here. Uh, we know a great deal about him, actually. He shows up in a number of places. He's kind of like Barnabas. You know, Barnabas is not one of those who has a book of the Bible named after him, but his name keeps popping up. He obviously was involved in the church in a very significant way. Well, the same thing is true of Silvanus or Silas. Uh, in fact, we read earlier in uh, in, in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, that he was among the trusted leaders of the church. Uh, he is referred to as one of the leading men. He is referred to as among those who have risked their lives for the sake of Christ. He is referred to as a prophet and apparently engaged in teaching ministry of his own. And um, as we saw, he is Paul's companion on, on, on many of his missionary labors. Silas accompanied him. In fact, it's, it's somewhat enlightening and interesting how all that came about. Silas, or Silvanus, was one of those chosen to help deliver the message or deliver the verdict, the decision of that assembly of the church in Acts chapter 15 with the stipulations that were there, that they were to avoid eating meat, sacrifice to idols, 
avoid eating meat with the blood in it, certainly to avoid involvement in sexual immorality, which for some of them at least was a part of their prior pagan religious practice, uh, as well as just part of fallen human nature. Um, but to be, on the one hand, to, to keep the law of God, but on the other hand, to avoid uh, offending Jewish sensibilities regarding meat offered to idols or meat with the blood in it and so forth. Well, Silas was one of those who was to go to the church and take this, this message that was handed down from this assembly of the church. But then you see uh, where Paul wants to go make a second missionary journey to go back and follow up on the churches, the people they had visited their first time out. And uh, he and Barnabas are getting ready to go. And Barnabas says, well, I want to take John Mark with me. And Paul says, no way. Because on the first missionary journey, they get to Cyprus and they have a magician who's opposing them. And Paul calls down blindness on the man because of his opposition to the gospel and opposition to their work. And I don't know, we don't know what happened, but they not long after that, Mark, John Mark, turns back. He heads home, turns tail, quits, and goes back. And apparently that didn't sit very well with Paul. And so when it's time to go out again, you know, Barnabas says, well, let's take Mark with us. And Paul says, no, we're not going to do that. And their disagreement was so strong that they decided to part company that first missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, and they go their separate ways. And Barnabas does take Mark along with him. And they go in one direction, and Paul chooses Silas to be his companion, his co-worker uh, on this missionary journey, and they go in another direction. Uh, we do read 2 Corinthians 1.19 that... Uh, that Silas was one of those who preached the gospel in Corinth. Uh, we find that he is listed along with Timothy as a co-author of First and Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> we refer to that as Paul's letter, but while his name does occur and he is the primary author of it, it does. It's also a fact that uh, Silas or Silvanus and uh, Timothy also occur as the authors of. That letter, and so this is some of his background. A significant uh, and influential believer in the early church, not as familiar, say, as Paul or Peter, but a man who was very much involved with them and uh, made quite a difference in the first-century church. Now, notice the character reference Peter has for him: a faithful brother, as I regard him. Faithful brother, trustworthy, somebody you can count on, as I regard him. A little hard to know how to understand that. Were other people calling calling him into question? Peter saying, well, I regard him as a faithful brother. We don't know. I don't think so. His reputation seems to be pretty sterling. Uh, Peter may just be personally vouching for Silvanus. He is a faithful brother, and I, I consider him a faithful brother. And Peter's opinion would carry great weight with these believers to whom he is writing. But there's some question here as to exactly what role Sylvanus plays. Uh, he says, by him I have written briefly to you, which question, raises the question, how? So was Sylvanus um, a secretary? Uh, an amanuensis is the $60 word for secretary, a scribe, uh, who took this down, who wrote it. Uh, that's possible, certainly. When he says, by Sylvanus, I have written to you. Um, and some have argued because of the difference in style in First Peter, Second Peter, that some of Sylvanus' influence is seen in cleaning up or polishing 
First Peter, that, that may be. Uh, it's also possible and maybe likely, given the grammatical construction where this occurs in other places, that he was, if not the, the scribe for the letter, at least the courier by which the letter was delivered. As we've seen from the book of Acts, it wouldn't be the first time that he was put in charge with uh, delivering the mail. Uh, so, And it may be both. It could be both. Uh, but it seems like the grammar tends to indicate that he perhaps was the one sent with this letter. And so it makes sense that Peter would commend him to these believers he was writing to there in Asia Minor um, because they would be receiving Sylvanus personally and uh, receiving Peter's instructions in this letter from him. And so here Peter reminds them of one connection. They, they may meet him in person when he comes and brings this letter to them. Now, there's another connection he refers to here, uh, part of this brotherhood. Notice uh, in verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Who is this? She who is at Babylon. Some have suggested that's Peter's wife. That's probably the least likely of the options. Uh, More likely referring to the church, church in Babylon, uh, which almost certainly referred to Rome, uh, sort of a code name for Rome, although there's really no reason in this letter that Peter would have to be careful about referring to Rome. Uh, if anything, the Romans would be pleased with this letter because, remember, Peter is saying you know, to, to pray for and submit to the governing authorities. It wasn't subversive in any obvious way. It was kind of in a subtle way, as we've seen, with its dignity given to women, to servants, slaves, uh, but, and its priority given to the kingdom of heaven over the, the empires of this, of this world but almost certainly referring to Rome. But there may be another significance to that expression, she who is in Babylon. Because as we saw in Jeremiah, Babylon was the place of what in the Old Testament? Exile, right? Uh, For Jerusalem, for Judah, when the Babylonians captured it, they took uh, citizens of it into exile in Babylon. Some of them you know, men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and others uh, who were in Babylon. And far from being there a year or two at most and coming back, the, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah was you settle down. You get married. You have children. Plant gardens. Plant fields. Prepare to be there a while. Make that your home and in fact seek the well-being of that place of exile because its welfare will be your welfare. You were tied up with it now. For, it turned out to be some 70 years for a considerable period of time uh, that, they were, that they were there, that they were part of that. And so it could be that this also has the idea behind it of, of exile, which actually ties in very nicely with the very beginning of the letter. Remember where he writes to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, all those all those places in Asia Minor. So it kind of creates a bookend with the beginning of the book, now referring to those believers who live in the capital city, Rome, Babylon, by the way, which, as you know, in the New Testament is used in Revelation. It comes to sort of signify any world power, any center of world power uh, in opposition to or distinct from the reign of, of Christ. That's why, you know, in Revelation it refers to Babylon as kind of the 
symbolizing the evil and the grandeur and the power of this world, it's ultimately cast down by the Lord. He alone has the glory. Uh, but that they too, <clears throat> in, in Rome, are in exile, uh, because they are exiles living here in the world as believers. And they are likewise chosen. Remember, he called them elect exiles. Well, these two are elect, those chosen by the Lord to share in the salvation in Christ with these believers Peter's writing to and with us. And so there's another point of that brotherhood that he's describing. Those believers who are, we would presume, in the capital city of the empire, Rome, who nevertheless are chosen exiles in Christ, they too send their greetings to their brothers and sisters in Christ that Peter is writing to. That's two. There's a third connection here that Peter reminds them of. Just briefly, doesn't say much, but he says, So does Mark, my son. Now, Mark is another one of those who um, actually does have a book of the Bible name from the Gospel of Mark, uh, but you can trace through the New Testament uh, and see some pretty significant developments. That they're, they're easy to miss. They sort of happen here or there, but um, he, he occurs a number of times. His background, uh, early in the church, Acts chapter 12, you know, after Peter is arrested and... Uh, could be put to death. The believers gather in the home of John Mark's mother uh, to pray for that prayer meeting. That's the one where Peter actually is delivered and comes and knocks on the door and the servant girl answers the door and runs because she thought it was Peter's ghost. Uh, that was John Mark's house, or at least his mother's house uh, there in the New Testament. As we said, he went on that first missionary journey, but uh, for whatever reason, bailed out, went home, and displeased Paul considerably, so much that Paul was not even willing to consider taking him along the second time, and actually, therefore, was the source of division between Paul and Barnabas. We don't want to make too much of that. It just says they disagreed sharply. It just may, we don't know how much personal feeling there was in that. It's just they eventually decided to go in two different directions, uh, and they do which actually led to greater spread of the gospel. He had two teams going out rather than just the one. Well, Mark indirectly was the source of that. And yet, that breach between Paul and Mark, if there was ever a personal breach, maybe it was just he just couldn't rely on him and didn't want to take him, uh, was healed. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy uh, to bring Mark for he is useful to me in my ministry. This was many years later, uh, and apparently Mark could, uh, Paul could describe Mark as being useful to him. Uh, Mark was probably pretty young earlier on, and uh, maybe he'd matured and grown a lot, but Paul himself would commend Mark as useful in ministry. And Peter here refers to him as his son, uh, not so much physically, not physically at all, but his son in the faith, a disciple, uh, a student, of his, which helps support the, the idea that Mark's gospel has Peter as its primary source. As you read Mark's gospel, you are reading information given to him by the apostle Peter, who of course had a front row, first-hand seat uh, to everything that is there that took place. So that's that's Mark, and he also uh, sends greetings from Mark, his his disciple, his son. In the faith. So that's three so far. Silvanus, the church in Babylon or Rome, probably, and then Mark. But then also, he points out that they themselves are part of that 
brotherhood to one another. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Why would he say that? Why would he have to tell them to greet one another or to greet one another with the kiss of love? After all, they're, they're there. That's like somebody writing a letter to this church saying, y'all be sure to say hey to one another. You know, well, well we, would, we would do that, wouldn't we? So maybe he means something a little bit more than just superficial greetings. And I think that's a way of reminding them that they too are a brotherhood for one another. That even just as believers in one area or in one church, one congregation, one gathering, that they are part of each other's lives, that they are interconnected with one another. You know, a church is more than just a place where people as isolated individuals or families gather on Sunday and go their separate ways. He reminds them, and we might say with, with a handshake of love or a hug of love or something like that, um, that they are part of one another. Just like uh, Sylvanus is part of them, just like the church in Rome is part of them, sends their greetings, Mark, greet one another with the kiss of love. That they are among themselves, their prime connections in Christ and prime encouragement and support for one another. So there, there are those four. And then the last one, although unstated uh, himself, is certainly a connection they have, and that's Peter himself. Notice Peter, even in this conclusion, is still speaking directly to them. Even passing along greetings, he still has something to say. Notice he's still exhorting, still declaring there in verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is? Well, everything that he's been writing. God's, God's salvation, his grace to them in the midst of suffering, uh, the, the, the reality that though they may suffer in Christ now, the same glory that Christ enjoys, just as he suffered first, then enjoys glory will be his, and that God will sustain them, and that God does have an inheritance for them that will not perish, spoil, or fade, kept by the power of God for them. This, all of these things, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's that word again, stand Don't be pushed off of Christ. Don't be intimidated. Don't be cowed. Don't be coerced into turning from your Savior. Stand firm in the grace of God, which implies not only the truths, but also God's help, God's strengthening, God's enabling them to stand. So he's still here at the end exhorting and declaring, stand firm in it, true grace of God. But then also in benediction, the very last words. Uh, peace to all of you. In many ways, a typical Jewish greeting, kind of the shalom, uh, peace to all of you, um, which of course is 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 a is a a, a blessing, um, pronouncing a desire that they would experience all of the richness of Christ, all of the fullness of God, that would give them a sense of well-being even when they're suffering, even when they have financial difficulties or relational challenges, uh, whatever it might be, even just blunt persecution, um, that they would experience a sense of well-being and peace. But notice how he qualifies it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
That's the most important connection of all. Sixth connection, if you are numbering these things. I mentioned five early on, but there really is a sixth one. And this is the most important connection of all. It's the last word of Peter's letter, the name of Christ. And apart from that name, there is no peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, because apart from Christ, there's no possibility ultimately of peace because you are not at peace with God. You cannot be at peace with one another, and ultimately you can't be at peace with yourself because you don't have that foundational relationship with the Lord. Apart from him, there is no grace of God. Apart from him, there is no peace. And having that connection with Christ by repentance and faith, then you have all these connections with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me just leave you with this question. Who do you have in your life? What connections do you have with other believers that serve to encourage you? That serve to sharpen you? That serve to challenge you? That serve to co-labor with you? Because we need to understand what Peter knew, what Paul knew, what Sylvanus knew, what Mark knew. And that's this. Christians are meant to function in connection with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book that we've studied and for this passage today. Uh, Father, these names are names that are familiar to us, and yet they're the names of real people who really lived and who were not um, sinless, who were not anomalies, but were fallen men and women who are redeemed by your grace and living out their lives. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that we share that heritage uh, with them. But Father, we thank you too for the believers who live among us today, uh, believers that we know and admire perhaps through the internet or television or the radio or whatever it might be, but also, Lord, those believers who we know here, we know personally, that we know in this church. Uh, Father, we pray that we would experience that power of a threefold strand, threefold cord, that is not easily or quickly broken as we encourage each other, build each other up, and as we minister together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.